0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine, booking the guests. In the new zoom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Wasn't it vaccination that got us out of COVID-19? So why isn't everyone vaccinating against the flu? The results are the same. Here, here's Scott
2: Thompson. There
3: we go. (laughs) I can play the right clip every now and again. (laughs) Hey, 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 you know, you're ill. You're over-medicated. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. The whole gang is here. Uh, What a fun day it is. And, you know, the boy's bringing up. He's getting political, isn't he? Where do you think he's getting that from? Um, but, you know, uh, and we've been having this discussion, we're going to continue to have this discussion as people continually uh, w- refuse to do anything to our Canadian, much sought after, highly coveted, but incredibly inefficient healthcare system that is crumbling to its knees. Uh, as we all scream and yell about it, but do nothing to fix it. Uh, we don't care that there's no medication coming in that's not keeping the fevers down to get the kids out of the hospitals and such. And no one's talking about the flu shot. Except me. I'm the only one hammering the flu shot. If you don't want your kid to get sick, if you don't want your kid to end up in a hospital, if you don't want your kid to die, like some have in British Columbia, get your kid the flu shot. Remember when we had COVID-19? We were begging for a vaccine that was never here, and then we had to line up to get it once it did. Well, there you go. So now we have a flu shot. And everybody, everybody's, oh, we're taxing the health care. No, you're taxing the health care system by not getting your kid vaccinated against the flu. It's not your granddad's flu anymore. And NACI is recommending everybody six months and older gets the vaccine. I'm thinking that's most listening to this radio station. So, you know, it's great that we scream and yell at the government of the day about our failing health care system, which nobody seems interested in fixing. Uh, we don't care that the medication's not coming in. We don't ask questions Why? But we're not taking a vaccine. Maybe because we were mandated vaccines, we were told we had to, you know, when 90% of the population was vaccinated, the prime minister was still, you know, chastising the other 10% that wouldn't or couldn't. Maybe that's why. I'm not sure. But I cannot understand why we're going, we're seeing sickness. We're seeing death. We're seeing an exhausted healthcare system. We're seeing pretty much what we saw with COVID, except instead of the older people, it's the younger people. That's the only difference. So we're taxing. And, and, you know, in the early stages of this, we we're wearing masks. We got to wear a mask, not because of the illness, because the healthcare system can't handle it. Did anybody then say, let's get a flu shot? You know, until I started having all the old doctors back on and saying, should we get the kids a flu shot? Nobody was talking about getting the kids a flu shot. Yet here we all are standing up and crying about, you know, oh, look at our poor healthcare system again that, of course, nobody wants to fix, but everyone wants to complain about. And look, we got no medication to keep the kids fever down. Why is that the case? It only seems to be the issue in Canada, not the United States or Europe. And then I said, well, everybody got a mask. Everybody's got a mask. Everybody's got a mask. Well, yeah, the masking was a big issue during the pandemic, but then the vaccine came. And that's the one single thing that we all could do to really get a handle on the situation. Masking, remedies, washing your hands, remedies, social distancing. things to keep you apart, things so you wouldn't get it. But the vaccine, if you do get it, it's not as severe, meaning COVID-19 or the flu. So here we are having masking debates again. No one, no one, no one is talking about vaccinating the kids. I'm watching a news report on CTV last night. All they talked about is the hell in the hospital, the hell in the hospital. The last line of the report said uh, uh, that uh, doctors recommend the kids to get vaccinated. Health officials say wear a mask. The doctors say get vaccinated. That was the only mention of getting the kids vaccinated. Here we are standing in the exact same situation as we were with COVID 19, waiting for a vaccine. We have one, we ain't using it. You want to stop the situation that's happening in the hospitals? Get your kid vaccinated. It's very simple. All right, a clothing drive that helps children and teenagers in Hamilton look spiffy for life events returns next week for the first time in years. Uh, the Precious Moments Boutique is a St. Mary Catholic Resource Center uh, that is outfitted new and and gently use graduation prom and First Holy Communion dresses and suits. This is a great idea. The Clothing Drive kicks off into gear next week and runs several more times uh, over the upcoming months as they enter 2023. To talk more about all of this, uh, Kelly Duffy uh, Karam is with us, social worker, founder of the Precious Moments Boutique Clothing Drive, and with us now. Kelly, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great So
3: Explain to us uh, in a bit more detail exactly how this works. What's going on here?
4: So um, this is a program that's run for approximately the last 20 years um, out of the need of for children um, to have uh, special uh, uh, um, a prom wear and first Holy Communion for their special event. Um, but what is going on next week is we're having our first sort of pop-up clothing drive and asking for new and gently experienced um, prom wear and First Holy Communion wear to be dropped off at our um, main main site at um, 90 Mulberry Street, which is our Catholic Education Center.
3: This is a great idea. You said it's been around for about 20 years. How did this come about?
4: It came about when I was working with a student, a Grade 8 student, who um, we were just chatting about the upcoming um, graduation. And the student was sort of saying, I'm not going to be going because it's silly and I don't want to go. And so just further exploration, uh, recognizing that uh, she wasn't going, she said, because she didn't have um, a gown to wear. So what happened was at that time as we sort of uh, reached out to a confinement store in Westdale, and they were just terrific and got all sorts of gowns in for actually that entire school and other schools, sort of in the code red at that time um, district, and uh, we outfitted all kinds of girls for their for their prom. And then the next year I just decided that, my goodness, this, this happens every year, and it's not just mm-hmm. girls, it's boys. and We also have um, First Holy Communion as well, so Um, It was just born from there, and we've moved a couple of times, and we've ended up at the uh, St. Mary's Catholic Education Centre, and we've had such great support from from our board and from our trustees and uh, from our community, uh, who have always been fantastic. And because of COVID, of course, the doors were shut the last couple of years, but things are moving in a great direction, and we're really excited. We have some new volunteers, as well as volunteers that have been with me for 20 years um, helping and uh, making sure that these kids special day is is special
3: you know what's so cool here Kelly is you know this one call way back when and and, and this one uh, moment of helping somebody in need has turned into this great this great idea this great service
4: thank you yeah it's uh, you know we get we get so much more joy doing it um, hmm. it's just It has always been a a labor of joy and a labor of love for for all of us that are involved. And since the pandemic, since we've come back, um, there's been a number of board personnel who have just are so excited to jump on board and help. And it's really great to sustain this program because I won't be there for another 20 years. But um, I really feel confident that this is going to continue and I can just come and be a volunteer. So I'm really excited about that as well.
3: And what a great idea! Because I mean, you know, over and above the pandemic or the situation of uh, of everybody's uh, everybody's family and such, I mean, we all know kids grow like weeds. So a lot of the time, these clothes are bought for one occasion or two, and then they're not used again. So this is just a, a great idea to 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 not only give back, but uh, but help get these kids in something that uh, makes them proud.
4: Absolutely, absolutely, and and also for the environment as well. I mean. You know things that are just hanging there that you only worn once I mean, yeah. and even other you know what's old to someone is new to somebody else and you're it's absolutely uh, true what you say that make them proud and I think one of the the joyful moments is when they stand in front of a mirror and they trill mm. around or they <laughs> want to wear their suit home um, it's just it's just been an amazing feeling over the over the past twenty years. It's And really how, been, coo- uh, and it's how cool and how cool is
3: this to get this up and running again post global pandemic. I know both my kids, grade twelve and grade eight, lost out on their proms and graduations because of what you're just saying. Yeah. So it's nice that things are just getting back to normal now and you can do this.
4: Oh, it's so exciting. I mean we were just Talking today at uh, my high school, you know, the kids just had a prom the other night and how wonderful it was for them to to be able to gather and socialize and, you know, feel a little bit normal again. I mean, these kids haven't even had a normal. And, you know, we've all suffered through the pandemic, but no one has suffered more than the kids, I believe.
3: Mm. And so if people want to help, how can we help?
4: So um, for next week, just for the pop-up, if they... If they have some clothing that's um, clean and current and something that they know that a, a young um, person would wear, they can drop it off at 90 Mulberry Street, which is our the Catholic Education Centre. We also have two dates um, coming up um, in the new year as well um january 18th and february 1st from three to six and that is actually at the the saint mary's catholic education center on mcnab street so they can find information on our board website we've always we're posting and we're also um, using other forms of social media twitter and um, instagram i believe so the information will be um coming out um, very shortly, but for next week, if you have something, you're cleaning out your closet, you're getting ready for Christmas, whatever, if you'd like to drop it off, you can do so at that time.
3: Kelly duffy Carrie M with a social worker, founder of the Precious Moments Boutique Clothing Drive, getting kids looking spiffy for the proms and everything they need, especially coming out of this pandemic. Great idea, Kelly. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hey,
5: The Ontario Nurses Association says it's concerned that Hamilton Health Sciences' decision to implement operating room assistance will lead to scrub nurses being replaced. Erin Aris is a registered nurse and says a patient needs someone who can respond
1: quickly if the unexpected
5: happens in the operating room. Unexpected
1: bleeding, cardiac arrest, loss of bleeding, all this happens. This is why nurses need to be in the room, more nurses, not fewer nurses, in surgery so they are able to respond when life-saving medical interventions are required. Hamilton
5: Health Sciences has released a statement saying OR assistants do not perform regulated work that's done by nurses and that no OR nurses have been eliminated. Lisa Polesky, 900 CHML News.
3: The Hamilton Health Sciences released this uh, statement yesterday as Lisa said uh came out about uh late in the afternoon the Ontario Nurses Association is providing inaccurate information operating room assistants do not perform regulated work done by nurses and uh, uh no OR nurses at Hamilton Health Sciences have been eliminated at Hamilton Health Sciences OR assistants work alongside two nurses in the operating room uh and HS uh, HS HHS also continues to aggressively recruit all for nursing roles in our hospital, uh, including operating rooms. So uh, there you have it. And and uh, in regard to that statement, we asked uh, the Ontario Nurses Association to come on. They were unable to do so, but they say they stand by their statement regarding uh, the changes to Hamilton Health Sciences operating room staff. The hospital's own statement around these changes itself is misleading. In fact, operating room assistants, unregulated workers with a ten-week course, are currently filling roles that nurses fill. They are working in sterile field in the scrub nurse role directly assisting uh, the surgeon. They had the surgeon instruments and equipment handle medication specimens, blah, 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 and on it goes. Um, the interesting thing that Lisa's report said is that they're concerned this will lead to this sort of thing. However, whether it's happening and whether it's leading to something uh, are certainly two different points. Let's bring in Leslie Gauthier, uh, Gauthier, uh Hamilton Health Sciences, VP of Clinical Support Services and Surgery and is with us now. Leslie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
6: Scott, very well thank you.
3: So uh, I was interesting uh, when Hamilton Health Sciences sent out this uh, press release yesterday in the afternoon we got it when the show was on and your thoughts on the response from the Ontario Nurses Association um, and what I've uh, partially what I've just read.
6: Yeah so thank you Scott I, I think the important thing that everyone understands is work in the operating room is teamwork There always is a surgeon present, a most responsible surgeon, a most responsible anesthesiologist. We are committed. We will always have two registered nursing staff, an RN and or an RPN um, in the room, always one RN. The second nurse could be an RN or an RPN. And we've looked for where there's opportunity that we could introduce the role of an OR assistant or technician to be a part of that team independently. Um, They have a very well-defined scope of practice in the OR, which is none of the work they're doing is work that the College of Nurses would define as regulated health professional act for nursing.
0: Uh,
3: So um, the roles of the operating room assistant, uh, they don't do any work that that a registered nurse would do or is required to? No,
6: no. no, so I, I'll respond to that. So, in the current models, we do have, for the most part, registered practical nurses doing the scrub roles during surgeries. It could also be RNs. They're all, both roles. Both will continue to do scrub work for emergency cases. That you know, after hours, some very specific surgeries. But what we've looked at is where's the opportunity that an OR assistant could could take on the scrub function. They're not taking on the nursing piece that would have been in that role. They're just taking on the scrub function of the role, which is essentially setting up sterile supplies, um, sterile instruments, handing those instruments to a surgeon. They could be labeling a specimen. Um, they could be preparing a medication alongside a registered person. So being the hands that do the work, which is the same model that happens in the pharmacy department.
3: Uh, Who would normally do that work? Would that normally be by a registered nurse? Now you're trying to find out ways of of making this more efficient, using nurses where they need to be used, not necessarily doing something that they're overqualified for.
6: Correct. So um, there's a few things. There's very different models across the world in terms of how ORs run. And there are lots of countries and lots of examples where ORs have various technician roles or assistant roles. So if you went to Great Britain, it's common to see OR technicians. Centres in the States and across Canada are starting to look at these roles and implement them. So there's, there's variation between hospitals. What we're trying to do, the, the problem we're really trying to fix is we know we have well over 8,000 patients waiting for surgeries. We are completely committed and training and orientating and, and recruiting for our registered RNs and RPNs. But in addition, if we can train some ORAs, what we're trying to do is to build capacity so we can address this very big wait list of patients who need surgery.
3: Uh, playing devil's advocate here, Leslie, they will probably say, well, why don't you just hire more nurses?
6: Yeah, well, we're short nurses, and, and yeah. Hamilton Health Sciences is not different than the rest of the province and the country, and there's lots of great work happening. Our schools are trying to open up positions to get more nurses, um, but that's not an immediate solution today. That takes years to train, like they have to go through their basic programs. So we're looking for some strategies that we can get. Two things, and you said it, Scott. We want to make sure our nurses are working to the maximum scope of the practice. What do we need registered nursing staff to be doing in the OR? And what are they currently doing that's not part of regulation, that with the right training and education and clinical work, we can, we can have other individuals trained safely to do that work.
3: How do you explain the Ontario Nurses Association's position on this? I know you're not them, uh, but their concerns.
6: Yeah, so change is hard, and I can appreciate um, anyone having difficulty when we're introducing new rules. Uh, and I saw this happen when we went from an all RN model and started to do introduce RPNs into the, you know, the medical surgical care of our patients. Um, on the wards. We, we then introduced, you know, where do we use PSWs into the for patients? You know, for our pharmacists, they, at one point, pharmacists everything. we now have pharmacy technicians and pharmacy assistants. It, it's changed and it's really helping people to understand we have a global pro- problem that we are short healthcare providers and we have a very long list of patients who really need our care. And how can we build a different model to be safe um, and try and meet this, this huge demand that's out in front of us? So change is hard. And we absolutely and we, we so value the work of our nurses in the operating room. It's critical. We need them. Um, but we, we have looked to say, okay, is there a piece of their work that another role with proper education, training and support could do? And that would allow them to to address all of those issues they're concerned about in terms of the patient acuity and if the patient ran into complications. We, we still have those two circulating nurses in the room who are responding with the
3: to. Uh, Leslie, we're almost out of time here, While well, we are, but I just wanna ask this question. Are uh, the uh, emergency room assistants represented by uh, the same union as, uh, as the nurses
7: association?
6: So the registered nurses are represented by ONA. Our registered practical nurses who do the majority of the scrub work in EOR are represented by CUPE and at HHS, our OR assistants are also represented by QP.
3: So that's not the issue there. All right, Leslie, uh, I'm sure this will uh, more will unfold here. Leslie Gauthier with us, Hamilton Health Sciences, VP of Clinical Support Services and Surgery, the big debate over uh, what is going on in the operating room. Leslie, thank you for the time and uh, clarity. Much appreciated, be well.
6: Thank you very much and happy holidays. Take care, Scott.
4: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: All right. We know how tough it is out there. Uh, Interest rates went up again Uh, yesterday. We know about inflation and how much it is costing. I don't need to tell you that we're all feeling the pinch. And, um, you know, many uh, organizations are are coming together to try to help out. We just uh, lit the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope uh, last week, kicked off the CHML Children's Fund campaign for the holidays. Uh, And as we've heard from everybody, the demand is greater than ever, especially amongst young people. So everybody trying to help out, and Mark Snack Bar on Ottawa Street is one business that is doing what it's can this season with tonight's annual food drive for the YWCA of Hamilton. It's from 7 to 11 tonight. There's live music there. Uh, Merck Snack Bar offers rotating menu with uh, products sourced from local bakeries, markets, and farmers and such. And uh, very cool place. Mark Baker with us, owner and chef of Merck Snack Bar. 189 Ottawa Street North in the Hammer End is with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. I hope Hope you're well.
8: Yeah, doing well, buddy. Thank you. I appreciate it.
3: So I'm looking on your website, and the first thing I notice is uh, the picture of your patio that you got set up uh, and the nice lights and such. And immediately, it made me think of Europe. It made me think of Italy or any other place. And this is the one good thing about the global pandemic is we got out to use these spaces that are right uh, right outside uh, our doors and such. Tell everybody what Merck Snack Bar is uh, uh, all about, what it's like for those that have never been there.
8: Uh, yeah, so Merck Snack Bar is a, its called a rogue kitchen. Uh, basically, that means that it's a tapas bar, but the menu does not conform to any uh, standard. So the menu, uh, it, it has pierogies, um, jerk chicken taquitos, tater tots, and tacos all in the same place all at once. <laughs> then, you know, when we come into... winter season now we start to mess around a little bit and we'll get some soup in you and then we just uh launched this new thing called a seafood newberg on the menu it's uh you kind of never know what you're gonna get we do have some standards that stick around because i don't want my customers to uh to revolt um (laughs) too badly from from not getting to keep their favorites um but yeah that's what it is you come in and it's a great vibe in the summertime like you had mentioned we have the uh patio space in the alley that's right next door that's great When we're inside in the cooler weather we have our nice comfortable seating inside i like to play vinyl records a lot inside um and yeah it's just a, it's a great place to come and hang out with some friends and, and, and maybe even meet some new ones
3: you talk about uh the inconsistency of the menu. You keep some staples but you keep the rest rotating. How do the customers react to that? Because I'm sure there's part of them that says, "Yeah, let's try something new," but another part that said,
8: "What about that you had a while ago?" Oh man. <laughs> that that actually just happened right now with our our most recent uh menu switch. We had uh scotch eggs that were always very popular and I decided to to break some hearts and take them off the menu for now. Um, and I, I've heard about it. A few people have told me how they feel in, in uh, many four-letter words and such. But uh, they'll be back. It'll come back. I promise, guys. Don't worry. It'll be all right. Uh,
3: so how come you, you you take this approach, Mark? How come you decide to do it this way? Because obviously it seems like it's more work, or maybe it's not. Uh, how come this approach?
8: You're not wrong. It is. It is a little bit more work. Um, you do have to kind of use your chef brain a lot more this way. But the the biggest reason is just because of product availability. And I mean, yeah. it worked out that COVID demonstrated um, how, how product availability affects restaurants right now because there are a lot of random things that you just can't get. Um, during the pandemic, things like garlic were scarce or mm. exorbitantly expensive. Um, you know, cooking oil had, had gone up triple the price. Um, there was there was a, an outage of cheese because the packaging for the cheese that we were buying was, was not available. Um, so really having a rogue menu this way means that I can now, when these product uh, shortages and availability issues come up, we can just say, okay, well, you know what? We, we, we can't serve this thing the way that we want, so mm. we're going to use what is available instead.
3: So talk about tonight's uh, annual food drive for the YWCA
8: uh so yeah this is uh this is a great initiative uh our local uh musician he's a uh, kind of our resident live music guy michael theodore um had approached us and uh it was actually very early in the year he approached us and he asked how we would feel about doing such a thing and you know Merck is always here we sponsor local sports teams we always help out um you know whenever people come by and ask for support in their initiatives so the, you know the ywca being right down the block we were like yeah absolutely let's let's do this thing um so he's going to be putting on some live music he's uh got a guy that comes in and plays the uh, i think it's the the uh, alto sax hmm. and they call themselves the thc combo the the uh, theodore and horner combo um and they're going to come in and just put on a, a live music a presentation for the night it's great he's always got good tunes going on he's always very interactive And, uh, yeah, come down, bring your donations uh, of of, uh, non-perishable food, and if there's any cash, you, you bring those too. We accept all of that tonight.
3: All right, it's all happening tonight at uh, Merck Snack Bar, 189 Ottawa Street North, YWCA of Hamilton from 7 to 11. Live music's going to be there looking for non-perishables and, of course, uh, cash for their food drive. Mark Baker with his owner and chef at Merck Snack Bar, 189 Ottawa Street North in the Hammer. Mark, good luck with this moving forward
8: thank you I appreciate
3: it all right we've talked about this case uh, a while and it's hard to believe now that we're coming up to the fifth anniversary and one of the four children of slain billionaires Barry and Honey Sherman has issued an emotional plea for help in solving her parents murder Uh, and of course saying five years ago my beloved parents uh, Honey and Barry Sherman were brutally murdered in their Toronto home Alexandra Wright so far there has been no justice for them no closure for me and my family to talk about where we are in this case Kevin Donovan is with us, chief investigative reporter, following this uh, very closely since day one, and is with the Toronto Star and here now. Kevin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I am. Thanks for having me on.
3: So uh, an emotional plea from the daughter here. uh, This because we're at the five-year anniversary, trying to keep this uh, in the public eye. Is there anything new at all to report for this?
5: Well, I mean, one thing that I found intriguing was that this is a statement from one of four children and not all four I've written before about how there's a uh, a disconnect between the the, the four Sherman siblings um, I think caused by the daughter Alexandra uh, according to Jonathan uh, saying that Jonathan the son had something to do with the murders which he, he denies uh, so now we have a statement coming out uh, a week uh, in advance uh, of the five-year anniversary, where she's making a very emotional uh, and I think heartfelt plea uh, for help in solving this case. And, and she points out something that I think you know a lot of us have forgotten about. There's a ten million dollar reward out there, and, hmm. and I see this statement as a, as a as a message to someone or some people out there. Uh, I, I think there's more to this than meets the eye. Uh, saying that there's there's money to be made uh, if somebody comes forward. Uh, add that to the fact that the Toronto police say that they're looking for information in five different countries, and, and I know that the Sherman daughter really wanted this message out there, and, and I think it's been picked up by a lot of a lot of outlets. So there's, I think something's going on. Uh, uh, I don't think we're about to have an arrest, but I think something's in the wind.
3: So, uh, are you surprised that other members of the family didn't put their name to this statement that it's only the one
5: i'm I'm totally surprised yeah i I would have expected that at least the two other sisters would have 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 joined together on this. Um, that said, uh, Alexandra, the one who put out the statement, is the one most involved in. In the family affairs right now, she has taken a leadership role in in the philanthropy of of her late parents. Uh, I think she runs uh, their various charities uh, that you know are doling out money uh, probably a lot this this time of year. And so, so she's the one most involved. But I would have expected it to be signed by the others. And also, I would have expected some comment from the Toronto Police and. And uh, as they have done on most of these anniversaries, but, but they're not, they're leaving it to, uh, to this one daughter to, to come out and, and, and exhort, tell people, come forward and talk to the Toronto police.
3: You were talking about the disconnect between the siblings. Would this be a disconnect between all of them or specifically this sister and the brother?
5: I think it's a disconnect between the three sisters and the one brother. I I've right. talked to both the brother, Jonathan, and to Alexandra. The other two sisters uh, have never given me an interview, and and so those, those two d- don't get along. It's it's sad, of course, because they used to get along. They they did some uh, some uh, historic charity marches. Uh, um, overseas to, to raise money years ago uh and i think they were quite close growing up but uh you know this this obviously was a terrible shock to them this this murder and and uh and you know, all sorts of fingers that are pointing in all different directions on this case and and that's what's going to happen when when the police uh you know don't make an arrest
3: does the sister still feel that the brother may have had something to do with this
5: i don't know i don't know that i, I mean my information comes from from the brother actually uh, she's never spoken publicly about this at all uh, he's he's said it to me and he's quite uh, definite i know he's told other people too uh in the family that this is upsetting to him uh, this, this is coming from from him and wow. uh, you know it's it's kind of you know good of him uh, good of Jonathan i think to be so honest and, and open about this uh but uh I, her current thinking I, I don't know about that and, and this by the way i didn't talk to her this is a statement that uh that was issued to, to all the media.
3: So, would you consider this a cold case, uh, Kevin? You know, we just heard the uh, you know uh, the great story of of, of the uh, cold case, the uh, the two murder cases which were solved through DNA, giving hope that something somewhere might turn up. Uh, is this is this at that stage right now where it's just it's cold? Yeah,
5: that's a great question, and actually, I'm doing a piece for next week, kind of around that whole issue. It's not a cold case because. The Toronto Police say a cold case is when all leads are exhausted, and I reported just a month ago the police have had leads in five countries. So there, there's stuff that they're still working on. Um, typically, a, something becomes a cold case if it's unsolved in the four to five year range. So we're right there. And I, I this morning I was going through the the. Um, uh, listing of all the cold cases on the Toronto Police website. And yeah, they all kind of start about at the five year level. But this one, they've got an officer assigned permanently, and you know they they say that they're pursuing leads. Uh, I take them at face value except that, as we learned in, a year ago, the, their big lead they pursued for four years went nowhere. You know, who's the walking man caught yeah. the video. so so until I can get more, Information released by the courts related to their police efforts, you know, we may find out one day that they, they really are nowhere and they're just throwing a dart at a map, five different countries. I, I don't know. But right now they're saying there's some piece of information, and I'm assuming it's financial, in five countries that they're trying to get. So, and of course, Barry had holdings all around the world. So you know there's a lot of mm. countries he had had a finger in.
3: Kevin Donovan with us, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star, and coming up to the fifth anniversary of the uh, murder of Honey and Barry Sherman and where we are. You can read more in the Toronto Star. Kevin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great stuff. Be well. You too. Thanks.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. Uh, the federal conservatives have spoken out about uh, the federal yesterday's uh, bank rate height from the Bank of Canada. Uh, also, uh, all of this coming in as we're seeing the Auditor General's report saying that uh, there was billions of dollars that were sent out to uh, people in regard to uh, COVID uh, global pandemic uh, relief and such uh, that will not be uh Retrieved that is, um, went to where it was not supposed to go. So, uh, clearly, not a good time for the federal liberals, uh, along with what has been going on uh, in the China file. Let's bring in uh, Jazraj Singh Halan, MP for Calgary Forest Lawn, Alberta, Conservative Shadow Minister for Finance, and is with us now. Jazraj, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
9: Scott, doing well here. Thanks so much for having me on.
3: Uh, before we get to the AG report and, and, and monetary stuff, which I know is your, is your specialty, any comment on what we're hearing? Uh, I mean, more information today. It seems there's one of these uh, every day. Um, it, the National De- uh, Defense is investigating uh, contracts uh, with Canadian companies and ties to the Chinese Communist Party in regard to the RCMP. We've certainly heard of rogue police stations that are harassing Chinese Canadian citizens. We're hearing of an uh, election interference with which apparently the prime minister wasn't uh, briefed on. Uh, Are are we seeing a different tone by the federal government now? It seems things that they uh, are talking about this week, we haven't been, uh, you know, a week ago they had a completely different opinion on, a month ago they probably had a a different opinion to that. Is the tone changing with this federal federal government and its view on the Chinese Communist Party?
9: Um, Well, we have to remember that this is the same prime minister who said he admires the basic dictatorship uh, of China. And of course, he uh, as more heat is being put on by the conservatives, he's changed his story along the way. We've been trying to get answers on whether he was briefed on this or not after the 2019 election. He's flip-flopped from saying, yes, he was, or uh, being very specific, using very specific language on answering that question. But the most concerning thing is that there, there are candidates that are, have been identified and if the Prime Minister knows who those candidates are, and the Conservatives are saying it doesn't matter what party they're from, the biggest concern is that this is, this is an attack on our democracy, and Canadians deserve to know with full transparency when or if the Prime Minister was, um, was briefed on that, what, what was the outcome, have they fixed anything that they found out, and more importantly, who were these people, will action be taken against them, and now we see more, even more concerning reports. With uh, you know, there's uh, police stations set up by the Chinese government, and just recently they gave a, a contract to a company for doing anti-espionage work for hmm. for Canada for the RCMP that was literally charged by uh, in America for doing espionage. So this government has not learned. Their checks and balances have been a complete failure, and that actually ties in with what the Auditor General's report came out with as well. Obviously for finances, but we see that across departments. The incompetency is going is costing Canadians um, you know, their, their trust in government and in government services.
3: Uh, obviously, the Auditor General came out and said that uh, there was, I think, about $4.6 billion in payments that uh, shouldn't have gone where they uh, uh, where they had gone, and there was another $27 billion uh, that certainly was questionable and, and needed more clarification. Uh, I've been talking to business professors that say this money could have gone out through uh, whether it's uh, the Canada Revenue Agency or, or any other agency, and we would have had uh, the ability to track all of it, but in Instead, was introduced as a separate program where here's the money you're getting it and the excuse obviously get it out there to the people that need it as quick as possible and then we'll try to get it all back uh for those that, that that took it that didn't need it now that's obviously proving to be uh very difficult to do i guess my question to you jazz raj is that it, aren't we setting up the canadian dental plan the same way where again it's just money thrown out and if this family you know heaven forbid needs to put food on the table are they going to do that or send the kid to the dentist are we making the same mistake twice here
9: um you're absolutely right look let's be very clear here the auditor general's report confirmed what conservatives have been worrying about since 2020 our leader was came out right in 2020 and warned the government of this that their wasteful spending because of a lack of checks and balances, is contributing to the cost of living crisis we see today. The Auditor General was very clear. There's about $32 billion of inflationary spending that took place that went to people that were in prisons, that went to public servants who were already working. It went to the people that were deceased. It went to people that didn't even live in Canada. And this is causing even more strain. And you're absolutely right. The Auditor General made very, very clear that it was a lack of controls, lack of transparency in those programs that led to this. And the Liberals continue to take the same failed approach in current and future programs, like the ones you listed, for dental, rental. And that that means that they have not, not only not learned, but they refuse to listen to the advice. And they need to fix this because Canadian taxpayers are continuously on the hook. As we see, 1.5 million Canadians are having to use food banks. One in five Canadians are skipping meals. 500,000 of those people visiting food banks are children in this country. And with costs going up due to liberal inflation, things are only going to get worse. So the liberals need to rein in their wasteful spending and make sure that they're respecting the Canadians, the taxpayers' dollar.
3: Um, What is the chance of getting any of these billions back that went out into the wrong hands during the pandemic? I mean, if Uh, if the Auditor General is talking about this, do we stand any chance of getting any of this back?
9: um you know what what we're calling for first of all is what the auditor general is calling for let's do an investigation and find out how much but more importantly how much more is it going to cost to recoup this money because the liberals need to be very clear and transparent on a plan that how they would think that they would recoup some of this money um but you know to have any type of faith in this government to do anything right is very low given their track record of wasteful spending. This is the same government that during uh, the pandemic gave, um, you know, their friends at the We Charity billions of dollars, a billion dollars. They've also given uh, their a uh, former Liberal MP a sole source contract worth $237 million for ventilators that weren't even used. So to think that they've learned from their mistakes, um, you know, our trust is very low, and I think Canadians understand that as well. Uh, but an investigation needs to happen. Canadians deserve to know why and how their money was was wasted.
3: Uh, do you think Canadians are making drawing the comparison between this money and the Canadian dental plan? Again, many are worried that the lack of checks and balances with the Canadian dental plan it's very similar to them throwing out money during the during the pandemic.
9: It's absolutely right. You know, the Auditor General was, uh, you know, the sorry the. Governor of the Bank of Canada and the PBO were clear, the public budgeting officer, that it was the wasteful spending from the last seven years, including what was spent over COVID, which was half a trillion dollars, out of which 40% had nothing to do with COVID, was what led to inflation today. And the Auditor General was clear in her report that the same failed approach in those previous programs are being used again today Mm. in the dental and the rental program. There are no checks and balances which means fraud can happen again, and that's what we're asking for. And the Auditor General has said the same thing. She wants to see more rigorous and more transparency inside of these programs that she has not seen yet. That's what Canadians deserve. Canadians deserve to have their taxpayers' dollars being used properly because it's the wasteful spending over the last seven years by the civil government that has put us in, in this inflationary mess today, and that was proven by the Governor of the Bank of Canada as well.
3: Jazz Raj Singh, Howland with us, MP for Calgary Forest Lawn, Alberta Conservative Shadow Minister for Finance, speaking on the Auditor General's report and the current government. Thank you so much for the time, sir. Be well.
0: Take care, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
4: delve into the issue until he is. You're
0: listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: All right, uh, lots of controversy around this bill. Uh, Ontario government has passed a bill that will give the mayors of two major cities, uh, Ottawa and Toronto, uh, the majority of uh, Toronto's elected representatives, uh, power over council uh, with uh, just support over a third of council. So, in other words uh well i'll get I'll, I'll have it explained in just a second bill 39 also known as the better municipal governance acts builds on the strong mayor's powers already given to ottawa and toronto alan hale is with us ontario legislative reporter for queens park today and is with us now alan thanks for the time i hope you're well
1: yeah thanks for having me
3: all right i'm not uh, i won't try to confuse things here tell us what passed today alan
1: Okay, so today was the last uh, day of the uh, sitting of the legislature for until February, and so the government got this uh, one of their last may sort of major bills passed before they uh, everybody heads home for Christmas and it's like you mentioned it's uh, called the uh, better municipal governance act and um essentially it uh, you your listeners may have heard uh something about strong mayor powers maybe like a month mm-hmm. or two ago this sort of builds on that um but instead of just giving uh the mayor of toronto and ottawa a veto power uh over certain decisions uh which is something that has precedent in the united states um but this time we're going a bit more un- unprecedented by not only giving them a veto power, but also the ability to pass um, pass bylaws that align with um, whatever the government, uh, the provincial government, says is its priorities. At the at this moment, that's mostly housing, but that could change. And they can pass those bylaws by only having one third plus one um, support of the city council, uh, which is. I pretty unprecedented. Uh, most I don't. I'm not aware of any democratic system anywhere that allows you to to uh, pass legislation with a minority uh, support of like legislators. So it's quite a. Uh, it's raised quite a few eyebrows, and frankly, it's done a lot more than that. It's had a lot of opposition. People are saying it's it's anti-democratic. Uh, um, yeah, it's very controversial, and um, but the. PCs passed it, and it's gonna, it's gonna, it's now law. And I understand the mayor of
3: Toronto has already used this in appointing a former Hamilton city employee in Toronto.
1: I believe you. Uh, I think you might be thinking of the strong mayor powers from before, but this is okay, something okay, that um, yes. Sean Tory did ask for, which is interesting. Uh, parent, uh, the the mayor of Toronto. This was apparently his idea, and he came to the PC government and Premier Ford about it. And um, that has been one of the big defense, um, one of the big um, justifications for this bill is that the government is uh, supporting John Tory because he says he needs these tools. And uh, they're going to support him because he's a mayor who wants to work to build housing, which is what they want to do. And uh, if anybody... Even Doug Ford said the uh, yesterday, I believe, that uh, he believes that what's really trampling on democracy is allowing um, is allowing city councilors who get much get much uh, less of the vote because they have to run in their different wards uh, to have the same kind of voting power on council as the uh, mayor. He believes that this is by giving the uh, mayor of Toronto more power to pass. Uh, bylaws with fewer support in um, council that's actually making the city more democratic which is an interesting take
3: so and this affects just the cities of ottawa and toronto at this point is that accurate
1: i believe this one just is um i believe is just toronto uh because it's amending the toronto um city of toronto act so this is specifically for um uh for mayor tory uh i don't uh unless i'm wrong about that but it is just for the toronto the city of toronto act and i mean the uh the mayor of ottawa if the new mayor of ottawa has pretty much said he's not planning to use the mayor this the strong mayor powers he's already got so i don't know what the government would have gained from giving him more but tory does want to use these powers and i mean if he has to he's said that he plans to try to work with the council if he can but if push comes the shove, he will use these powers. All right. So how does
3: this affect other cities uh, other than Toronto and Ottawa with, um, you know, specifically whether it's Bill 23 or this? Because there seems to be uh, – I know that uh, the premier was speaking out against the mayor of Mississauga uh, just the other day. What's the buzz <laughs> in and around that and, and the feeling?
1: Okay. So there is a bit of – there is some uh direct impacts from this on other cities uh specifically um, the bill besides giving these powers to mayor Tory, also uh, lets the municipal affairs minister pick um the head the chairs of uh three municipal regional municipalities um, niagara mm. peel and york region um i don't know it's uh i was a municipal uh a reporter for a while, so I'm pretty familiar with this stuff. But some other people might not really know what their regional municipality does. But it's basically made up of uh the council is actually made up of like city councillors from individual cities. And then those groups of people that council picks who gets to be chair. But now uh it's going to be the it's going to be the municipal affairs minister who gets to decide who's going to be chair of those bodies. And they have a lot of power over like uh like district-wide services. Uh, it's a pretty important position. Um, and uh, so that is just going to be handpicked by the government now. No decision. They can't choose mm. their own chair anymore. And it's got a lot of people upset as well. Um, yeah, as for like the stuff going on with uh, Mississauga, uh, that's really more about the the housing legislation. Your listeners, met, listeners might have also heard about in the past couple of weeks, the uh, Building More Houses Faster yeah. Act um there's a lot of controversy there about how much uh, money that's going to cost municipalities because it makes a lot it hmm. makes uh as, so that they can't charge development charges on different projects right. and these are fees that usually go towards like building roads and sewer extensions to you know service these new houses that are getting built and now that money is going to have to come out of like the, the tax budget the municipalities saying are saying and Ford is not buying that. He doesn't think that's true. He wants to audit a bunch of municipalities' uh, finances to find the waste that he's sure is there. And mm. he basically told the Mississauga mayor yesterday to stop whining about it.
3: Alan Hale with us, Ontario legislative reporter for Queen's Park today, talking about Bill 39, known as the Better Municipal Governance Acts, uh, building on the strong mayor's power and everything else going on in the provincial politics. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Thank you so much. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right, Hamilton City Councilors have agreed to ask the Ontario government to repeal parts of Bill 23, the new provincial legislation uh, that critics say will override local plan uh, planning powers, limit the ability of municipality uh, municipalities' ability to collect development charges, and reduce public input on development. Let's talk to Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councillor, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Brad, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. I hope you are also. So far, so good. Uh, Your take, Brad, on Bill 23 and the concerns of council and this bill?
2: I fully understand the intentions of the province of Ontario. They want to build more housing. I think the challenge is that there was lacking consultations with the municipalities and uh, we're the ones that can share with them exactly what the implications were. And so that's the challenge that we now find ourselves in.
3: So what is it that uh, is specific to Hamilton that, that concerns you? And, and obviously, uh, members of council want to meet with MPs, MPPs on this. Uh, what are the concerns that stand out?
2: Well, one example would be the province has um, included the white church lands, uh, which is near the airport growth district. Uh, in that airport growth district now, and when we did that study uh, many years ago, it was not included. So there isn't a servicing strategy. There was no development charge backgrounds, and adding that land um, to uh, force the municipality to include that in in, in development will mean an additional 300 to 400 million dollars in servicing and that that we don't have the money for and we normally would collect that through development charges so that's just one specific example to hamilton uh that we're concerned about
3: is this too broad a plan in order to custom fit every city is that what you're saying
2: i think that's an excellent way to describe it scott uh it it they were they, the, the province was clearly consulting with developers across the province. Each municipality is slightly different in terms of where they are. For example, in Hamilton, we have thirty-four thousand residential units that have already been approved by the city. That have the shovel is not in the ground yet. For whatever reason, the developers have not moved forward with those developments, even though we've approved it. And so that gives us an indication of how much housing is already available in Hamilton, should they decide to proceed. And they may not be proceeding, Scott, simply because interest rates are much higher on lines of credit Mm -hmm. than they were in the past. Little things like that can easily cause things to go askew. So what needs to be
3: done here, Brad? Uh, Obviously, you're looking for uh, members of the provincial parliament to show up and and sort of go through this stuff with you. What are you hoping to find? What are you hoping to to accomplish uh, with the meeting with the province?
2: My hope, uh, sincerely, is that calmer heads will prevail, that all of the hyperbole and political rhetoric that, that we're seeing in the media stops, And municipalities have a good conversation with the province to understand the implications to the municipalities. Because I I sincerely believe the province intended well. Mm -hmm. It's because we weren't at the table and could not raise concerns as to how it would be uh, implemented that, that has caused us the problem.
3: Um, what can you say? Uh, you know, some people may look at this and, and say, you know what? Here we go. More delays, more delays, more delays. This is why we're in the position that we are. We haven't built anything for 20 years and, and, and here we go. So h- how do you balance that? And, and as you said, uh, f- you know, uh, listen to what the province says and get stuff built, get it done, but still alleviate the concerns uh, that we have from some people without virtually stalling these projects.
2: Yeah, and, and and that's the challenge for us to understand this because in Hamilton, over the last decade, probably closer to 15 years, we have had in excess of a billion dollars in building permits. We have had record development uh, in Upper Stony Creek, um, in the uh, Ancaster area, uh, water downs booming. So we're seeing that growth and we are not impeding that growth. I guess the challenges the way they have rolled back some of the development charges means that the taxpayers in Hamilton will now be footing the bill for those rollbacks. And and our most recent calculations show it to be between fifteen and twenty five million dollars a year, which is a significant increase to to property taxpayers who are already overburdened.
3: Um, the provincial government has said that that is referring to affordable housing and then that will be reimbursed by the province. Is that accurate?
2: Um, that is one component of the bill. It is not the only component in the bill. And I think that's where we get into this. Um, you know, you're having some politicals point to one area of the bill and say it's Mm -hmm. it's not an issue, but when you go through the entire bill, look at all of the clauses, the impacts to the municipalities it's much larger than just the dc's on affordable housing so do
3: you get the impression that city council is looking to move forward with this just become uh, make some amendments to this that better suit the city of hamilton and its taxpayers or do you think they just you know we ate this we're getting rid of it we don't want it we don't anything to do with this government
2: i again my hope and i think the majority of councilors around the table their hope and i know it's the mayor's hope is that there will be consultation with the municipalities and that the province will recognize the financial impacts to the municipalities and modify the implementation or um, not proceed with certain sections of the bill. But until uh, we sit down to talk, we can't fix that.
9: And
3: any feedback yet, Brad, from the province on this, on taking you up on your meetings?
2: Um, Premier Ford has said publicly that they are looking at not implementing the financial components until... I think it was June or July, Scott. I can't remember the exact uh, time frame. So I think the premier is listening. We just need to turn down the rhetoric so that we can actually hear each other.
3: Boy, isn't that something, Brad? Turning down the rhetoric. How long have you been saying that in politics? <laughs> Good for you. Uh, I, Brad... I've
2: been alone a while, but I have been saying it. And I think more and more people are seeing
3: it. Brad Clark, Ward 9 Counselor, City of Hamilton, uh, trying to find a solution. Brad, thanks for the time. Good luck.
2: Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day.
3: Lots of issues in regard to the federal government and the China file. Lots of stuff coming out uh, just in the last several days, weeks or so, uh, whether it's um, uh, alleged uh, election interference in the federal election by uh, the Chinese government, whether it is uh, rogue police stations that are in Canada to keep an eye on uh, Chinese Canadians. And now, federal government, uh, we're learning a couple of times, has awarded contracts to provide uh, and maintain RCMP communications equipment to a company with ties to the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, uh, raising concerns about potential Chinese access to RCMP communications uh, and data, and of course um, the the Prime Minister uh, questioning the public service on all of this and promising to get to the bottom of it and sort of throwing them under the bus. Uh, all well last week, not really saying he was briefed on the election interference uh, issues. Uh, the tide is turning a little bit here. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies. He is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Same to you, Scott. All right, Daniel, Uh, obviously
3: lots of issues around China of late, whether it's uh, election interference, allegations of whether it's uh, police stations uh, harassing Chinese Canadians. And now uh, we're hearing of contracts awarded uh, through the public service to uh, companies with ties to to China. We understand that uh, the safety minister is already in the process of discontinuing some of these contracts. It seems that a lot of stuff is hitting the fan now. Why is this happening now?
7: Oh, well, to be honest with you, I think the government's just at that point where they're just getting out of COVID. They've had a lot of staff turnover, and they're just not as experienced as they once were. We're not seeing the A team we had in 2015, the B team we had in 2019. We're honestly down to the C or D team. And to be honest with you, this falls at the, the foot of the prime minister and his procurement minister. They they should know better not to do deals with China. And you can say, "Oh, they didn't know," but. 20 seconds on Google kind of indicates the connection there. So it's disappointing to see, to be honest with you. Uh,
3: there were times when, uh, earlier on in his tenure, the Prime Minister, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to necessarily say praising China, but certainly being supportive of them. <laughs> we're certainly seeing the tie change. He, he almost looks uncomfortable talking about this. Why is this turning now? What has changed that all of a sudden has brought this to the front burner for him?
7: It's really just been a change in the relationship. It's over his tenure, it slowly has gotten more and more strained. And right now, it's really at a breaking point. It, there is no love lost between Canada and China. It, it started with the two Michaels and just how that situation was handled, and it continues to uh, boil over. And I think the government is getting frustrated, and they don't really know how to respond to this. And we even saw in their recent announcement of the uh Indo-Pacific agreement where they kind of just push China out and they're trying to deal with the people around them and the countries around them so I I think this government is just they're at their wit's end and they don't really have much room to move China has Canada put in, in the corner and they're trying to get out of it somehow
3: uh yesterday the Prime minister uh, said in Montreal it was disconcerting that the federal civil servants awarded this contract an RCMP contract to a company with ties uh, to the Chinese government. he, uh, he and public safety minister uh, vowed to do an assessment of the contract and its awarding process. Is he throwing the public service under the uh, the civil service under the under the bus here? I mean, is this something he should not have known about or he should have known about rather?
7: Not only did he throw the public service under the bus, he also backed over them one time just to kind of make sure it couldn't be blamed <laughs> on him. But the reality is that's what the minister's office is there for is kind of that safety net to kind of check everything. So whether that was filming a Tassie as the previous procurement minister or the current procurement minister, it is their responsibility to go through no matter what the value is. And some will say it was under a million dollars, who cares? Um, I don't think that's going to really cut it for the average Canadian. There needs to be some accountability for how money is being spent and who's getting contracts, and this wasn't the first time that a Chinese company has received a contract for security. So there's clearly going to be a lot of thinking to do in terms of the government, but it's a little bit disappointing and sad to see the public service who are nonpartisan be used in a partisan way.
3: Why would they do this? Why would they? uh, Would they not check with somebody? Uh, Did they check with somebody? Uh, uh, Why would they have done this if they didn't feel that they had permission to?
7: You would think they would check it. Anyone who's ever dealt with the government at all uh, really understands the challenges of selling to them, especially the procurement process is a very long, complicated process uh one where bureaucrats typically do check all the boxes and do their homework and again it comes back to even if you just googled the company you'd be able to see their connection to China and that should have raised some red flags and I think the minister's office going back to them they are the ones who should be taking the blame for this because at the end of the day that's that's their job is to be that safety net and ensure that Canadians money is being well spent and being accountable and it's very clear that, that this didn't happen in this case and I think Canadians will be quite frustrated with it
3: Uh, Do you think it's odd the position that the public safety minister is taking on this? Because many would say that's what the safety minister should be doing all along. Your thoughts?
7: Uh, Yeah, it's kind of been thrown to him. This is clearly a procurement issue, not a public safety issue. It became a public safety issue just because of the contract it was awarded to. So you're definitely seeing uh, the minister step in now and try to uh, help the situation and kind of move it along and clean it up a little bit. And that's kind of his job because at the end of the day, this is a public safety concern because those channels that are being used by the RCMP need to be secure. They need to, Canadians need to have trust that no one's listening into to them, not just for our safety, but for the safety of the men and women in uniform.
3: Uh, this is what we know today. Uh, are you concerned that there's other uh, uh, cases to be uncovered uh, that, that, that sort of lean in the same direction? Uh, is this the tip of the iceberg, do you think?
7: Whoa, whoa, Scott, are you telling me that a politician might not be truthful with us right off the bat? Come on, give them a little <laughs> bit more credit. Um, yeah, there probably is a little bit more to this story. And as the days go on, I think it's going to trickle, trickle out slowly. Um, because, yeah, this seems like it's a pretty big mistake uh, not to have some more underlying issues with.
3: So is now the public safety minister reversing these? We are hearing that he is starting to. Is that accurate?
7: Yep, that's accurate. and. I think all Canadians should take him at his word that he is trying to get out of these contracts. Some money will be spent and will be given to them. There's always breaking contracts are expensive, but for the safety of those using the equipment, I think it makes sense. And I do fully believe, not only politically it makes sense to this, but also just for national security. I can definitely see them being truthful in that sense and kind of break these contracts.
3: What does this change moving forward? We remember that the prime minister was working on a deal with China and Casino in in regard to a vaccine, ended up stealing the intellectual property and we were left hanging. What does this change moving forward?
7: Uh, I think it continues to erode the relationship that we have with the Chinese government. Again, it's not one that has always been on the best terms. It seems to keep getting worse. So I think that we're going to see the Canadian government look to other partners to find solutions that China traditionally provides to us.
3: How do you think China feels about this change of tone in our federal government?
7: Uh, I don't feel like it's keeping them up at night. Let's put it that way. Uh, when it comes to uh, Canada-China canada relations, uh, we're not exactly the biggest player in China. We don't ha- really dominate anything on the world stage. So uh, I think they're sleeping pretty tight.
3: So why bother with the coziness in the first place?
7: Because the relationship that we have with them is very important. Uh, the Canada-China relationship, if we look at the exports and what we import from them, it's, it's quite a bit of things we bring in. So, and especially as they're emerging as a world superpower, as a nation like Canada, you kind of have to play ball with them a little bit.
3: Uh, that being said, we get a lot from them. They get very little from us. Do you think we'll change that in any way?
7: uh i don't think so china is such a big market where if they can't get something from canada they can quickly turn and go somewhere else and get it so we don't really have any leverage in this relationship where china has the leverage over canadians so that's where i think when the government's going to try to find other ways to try to create a create leverage or b find other ways to get the materials and resources that china provides from somewhere else and we saw that in their recent announcement
3: Daniel Perry with us, consultant at Summa Strategies, uh, talking about everything uh, government and our relationship to China. As always, thanks so much for the time, Daniel. Be well.
0: You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh,
3: we got a, a note from uh, tech journalist Carmi Levy, who we often have on the show, and uh, maybe we'll talk about this with him tomorrow. But he saw in regard to the story about the uh, – uh, the, the contract, the technical contract with the RCMP and a con- and a Canadian company supported by um, the uh, Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this is what Carmi had to say in regard to uh, these companies doing business in Canada. When I first saw the story break, I found it amusing that the Canadian arm of the company, Sinclair Technologies, trotted out the usual we're proudly independent line and denied any connection with the Chinese government. I wouldn't believe it for a second And all the concerns we've discussed previously say about Huawei uh, being a vendor of Canada's 5G build-out is a Canadian subsidy as well. The real risk and frightening giving them the ability to hook their black boxes up to our national networks. And you may as well be giving the Communist Party a gold-plated hotline to listen in on everything we say and do on those networks. This isn't anti-Chinese hysteria. It is a very real risk betrayed by the fact that uh, China has used such corporate deals in the past to engage in this very same form of electronic spycraft. This is what they are known for, so it's a real stretch to take Sinclair uh, and their denial at face value. the uh, That the RCMP deal was granted without a security review is frankly mind-blowing. The channel some uh, uh, sims, uh, Simpsonian logic and like, uh, uh, hang on a sec, he's quoting people here. How naive and blind to reality can they be? The dollar figure of the contract, admittedly small, probably had something to do with it, but any contact of any size with a Chinese-owned company should have raised alarm bells. That's what Carmi Levy says as uh, technology analyst. We'll see if we can get him on tomorrow to talk more about all of this. All right, let's move on. Scott Radley is with us, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and he is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing so far so good. Uh you I want to ask you your thoughts on uh Brittany Griner uh getting released mm. from a Russian prison on her way home as we understand right now. Uh this is huge and quite a surprise today. What are your thoughts?
10: Uh All right. So we don't want North Americans, Americans, Canadians, whatever, locked up for overwrought charges. I mean, she broke the law. She says she broke the law over there, but, you know, the penalty that she received was excessive for the, for the charge that she committed, the crime that she committed. That said, I'm not sure that, you know, in a, in a very dangerous world, uh, I'm not sure that swapping her for a guy known as the Merchant of Death... Is a good trade, uh, you know. Surely, if he is that high leverage, high value, a prisoner, a guy who was trying to help th- supply terrorists with weapons to kill Americans, it, it it's it's it, like if this was a baseball trade. We're talking basketball. If this was a basketball mm, trade, mm, you would say mm. you just traded Michael Jordan for someone who was coming off the bench as your twelfth player. It doesn't seem like we're talking about an even thing here. Now, the difference is Brittany Griner is a well, she's become I don't know. I was going to say she's a big name. Uh, I don't know that she was a big name to a lot of people before this happened. I think a lot of people have heard about her. She's become quite famous. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, a lot of people have pointed out today, Scott, there is still an American Marine that's being held on accusations of spying that are apparently trumped up charges. If you're going to give back the Merchant of Death, surely you could get a Marine who fought for the country back in exchange, and maybe Brittany Griner as well. I, I, I don't know. I just I, I look at this, at, you know, from a distance, and I think it just it, it doesn't seem like this is like we're talking about two even value customers.
3: Um, what if they would say this is the best we could have done? Couldn't have got two for one. This is the best we could have done. Well, uh,
10: so do you go with one or do you not go with any? It's a great question because uh, does this not now lead any other country that is an enemy of the United States to find some reason to have some other person on trumped up charges if you've got some of their people in prison because you know that eventually you can put enough pressure on that you'll get your very dangerous person back for whomever. I mean I I the, the danger here is it's not quite negotiating with terrorists, but it's sending a message that look we will take whatever offer ultimately you want to give us. So That's, you think a
3: precedence has been set.
10: I uh, that would be that would be my fear. That would be if I if I was someone who was especially American, if that would be my fear that if I end up imprisoned somehow in one of these countries that doesn't like us you know, uh, well, I, actually, I should back up. Not those. Those people may be in great shape now, relatively speaking. It's someone who's over there doing work that, you know, it's – it's. look, I just – I look at this, and I, again, Scott, I just – I think to myself, this uh, – a person who's there for marijuana oil residue – doesn't seem like a fair trade for the merchant of death i I just can't get i can't get past that it just doesn't seem i don't want britney griner locked up i don't want her in a hard labor camp i i'm not celebrating that she is there but you're talking about someone who was actively working to kill americans that you've now released what what happens Mm. what happens if he goes back to his old life and americans as a result die was it a good trade Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. It's
3: coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast.
0: You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, today we remember the death of John Lennon in 1980, and we so need now to, well...
0: Let's let him say it.